Hey everyone, my name is Christian and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. Today we're taking a look at an album I didn't know existed prior to starting research for this episode from a band that I've only ever heard the hits and even then probably not all of them. A prog rock icon, we're covering Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. the 2010s and back to the 70s. Who knows what era we'll cover next? Well, actually, everyone does. I post the lineups all the time. We are firmly in vinyl and cassette era here, a period of time far before I was born, but as it turns out, still full of interesting ideas. Now, before we get into the breakdown, some quick stats about the album and the band, as always. Wish You Were Here is Pink Floyd's ninth studio album, released in 1975, only two years after the iconic musical and, well, graphic design hit Dark Side of the Moon. Around the time that the album was released, it was noted as underwhelming, but has since achieved widespread acclaim. The album covers similar ground as Dark Side, talking about the music industry and their relationship with Sid Barrett, a founding member of the band, and an individual who left the band a few years prior due to declining mental health. Arguably, seen in the breakdown, the album is actually largely about this, which brings up an important point. The breakdown in this episode, as with most episodes, is devoid of any prior research. As such, situations with Sid Barrett and the band's connection to him or any true aspects of their relationship are being inferred based on the lyrics. Every breakdown that I make is a focused and isolated interpretation of the lyrics and music that is more in line with opinion than fact. The attempt at looking at these albums with the goal of finding their meaning is in hopes of granting a new perspective, rather than uncovering the truth about what was going on behind the scenes. So, most importantly, the interpretations should not be taken as truth, but rather abstracted insight to maybe the world around. But as always, if you feel like anything that I've said or will say shines unfairly negative or incorrect light on any subject, feel free to bring it up to me in comments or messages to the pages. I am not above digesting and dissecting my words in order to promote a more inclusive and just community. Considerate truth is an important part of a functional society. And, well, with that being said, I have a few more things about the album. Wish You Were Here topped the charts in Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, the UK, and the US the year it was released, despite its kind of middling reviews at first and has since been ranked platinum or multi-times platinum in all of these countries, as well as Poland and Greece, even going as far as Diamond in Germany, selling at least 1.5 million records there alone. The record worldwide has sold at least 20 million records. That's one record per 100 households in the world, which is a lot more than it sounds, I promise. Bringing back the metric that is worth noting as well, but not necessarily the most illuminating, The Rolling Stone has this album as the 264th best album of all time as of 2020. For those of you who don't know who Pink Floyd is, first of all, how? (laughs) And second of all, they are an English prog rock band active from 1965 to... Technically still ongoing, maybe? Their last album was released in 2014, and they put out a single this year, but the band as it was, for the majority of its time, dissolved in 1994 with the release of The Division Bell. 
It was founded by Sid Barrett, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and Richard Wright, and released 15 albums, which yielded over 250 million sales. That's one Pink Floyd album per around seven households in the world, which is an absolutely bonkers number. They traveled on around 12 concert tours with over 1,100 shows worldwide. All in all, Pink Floyd was, is an institution, and remnants of their influence exist everywhere, from their heavy and rebellious and deep progressive themes to their iconic iconography, so much so they've been put on everything from postage stamps to within the rock and roll and UK halls of fame. For those who don't know what prog rock is, listen to the Power Windows episode. Or, for a quick rundown, prog rock is essentially long-form rock that is characterized by significant musical and or lyrical changes occurring within single songs, so much so that the songs tend to be quite long. Shine On You Crazy Diamond from this album, for example, if you put both halves of it together, is a 25-minute song. No song on this album is under 5 minutes long, and there are only technically 4 songs, so do with that what you will. But rather than continue to worry you with facts and numbers and figures, let's just get into the episode, shall we? With one of the greatest selling musicians of all time, and one of their most iconic albums, on this episode of Throughline, here's Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. When I was first building this podcast, I was looking at a selection of albums from popular bands, bands that had cultural significance and renown, bands that I wouldn't have been able to avoid covering, and I completely and resoundingly overlooked Pink Floyd. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't as if I were avoiding them, but truth be told, other than a few songs that were radio popular, or maybe I've heard and never knew were Pink Floyd, I've never searched this band out. I've never listened to one of these albums all the way through. I've likely never heard anything but the biggest hits from the biggest albums. I think off the top of my head, I'd be able to name like four of their albums? Dark Side, Division Bell, The Wall, and Now Wish You Were Here. So when my dad first suggested I cover them so as to include some more classic rock influence on the upcoming lineup, I defaulted to him to help choose which would be the best album to cover that kind of fits the parameters of the podcast. And he suggested Wish You Were Here, absolutely failing to mention that the album is one of the lightest albums on lyrics that I've ever heard. The opening song is 13 and a half minutes long and doesn't have a single word until minute nine. There are less than 600 words in the entire album, making an average of 13 words per minute. At a normal conversational rate of speaking, a calculation I make consistently when writing these episodes, that is five minutes of speaking in a 45-minute album. One-ninth. Eleven percent. But to be fair to him, this actually opens up an interesting dialogue. Are we really looking at the whole picture of an album if we're primarily focusing on the lyrics contained within? Does all music exist separate of the lyrics, or do they work in tandem to create an entire picture of the meaning? Would the lyrics mean something different if they existed in an alternate sonic environment? One of the main distinctions between lyrics and prose or poetry is the existence of sound. Other than spoken word poetry, book readings or audiobooks, poetry and prose dwell outside of that sensory space. So then, how does that sound inform the meaning? 
as we've looked back on melodrama and power windows the last two episodes, a lot of the meaning was largely derived from the lyricism. But here, we have the opportunity to learn how the music accomplishes the same goal. But then how do we go about finding meaning in music? Well, luckily, we do have some lyrics as guideposts, as well as one of the most overlooked aspects of our breakdown so far, the song titles. Wish You Were Here has a rather peculiar structure. It is bookended by nine parts of a single song titled Shine On You Crazy Diamond. One to five take place before the middle three songs, and parts six to nine take place after. The fact that they are labeling these songs by including a large number of parts in each full section rather than just a part one or two actually informs a lot of the intention behind the album. A musical story is being told. Chapters of the story acts in a play with a three-song interlude in the middle. They are specifically telling the listener that there are breakpoints in these two songs, pointing out that each section must have some meaning or musical significance enough to delineate them. And by breaking them up into parts, they are allowing themselves the opportunity to relay musical themes from one part to another, showing changes in a storyline driven largely by groovy prog rock rhythms. Listen to parts 1 and 6 and notice the musical similarity in the openings of the front and back of the album. Both songs start on this slow build of electronic synthesizers or patterns that then leads into the rest of the half, but there is already some subtle information sonically about the state at which these parts reside. Part 1 is softer and gentler, more of a beginning as a whole, whereas Part 6 seems to be a corruption, a turn toward a darker half or a darker story arc. Part 1 is more ethereal and unformed, and Part 6 is more rhythmic and mechanical. Okay, well, that's great and all, but we still haven't discovered the relevance that these differences have on the story. So let's begin to dig into the meaning of the few lyrics and see if we can't pull out a pattern forming between the songs. Now, it's no real mystery what this album, or at least the beginning and ending song, is really about. Any reasonably well-versed Pink Floyd fan knows the band's history at this time, and the lyrics aren't exceptionally subtle in referencing those events. Even I, having not really known anything about the band prior to researching this episode, read a small snippet of information regarding the creation of this album while looking at like a ranker clickbait article. Something having to do with a member of the band having a problem with their mental health, them leaving the band, and the band subsequently writing Shine On You Crazy Diamond as a tribute to them, despite naming it in arguable poor taste. But if that is about him, then what is everything else about? And how does this all tie into a bigger picture or theme surrounding the album? The second song on the album, Welcome to the Machine, broods after a 13-minute opener, a wobbling and industrial turn at societal fatalism, describing a situation in which an unseen we seem to know exactly who someone is and what they aspire to be through a cyclical system they call the machine. The third song, Have a Cigar, again continues the theme of taking the perspective of an outside force, talking to a seemingly young adult individual, a boy, but 
this time gussying up the presentation in showcasing an interest, desire, and assurance that their band will be successful. So now wait, these two songs are incredibly similar, and almost seem to be talking about the exact same character. We're starting to get a running theme of an overwhelming outside force molding an individual into a perfect and profitable part of a societal plan. A commercialistic goldmine, seeded through media influence and the urge for rebellion that was never really their idea to begin with. Now, both of these songs don't really seem to have explicit turns toward this being a negative thing, but the doting condescension in Have a Cigar and the almost Big Brother-esque level of knowledge and insight in Welcome to the Machine have nefarious undertones. Listen to the ending part of Welcome to the Machine and notice the dark emphasis on We Told You What to Drink. He always ate in the steak bar. He loved to drive in his Jaguar. This is brand iconography, a reference to propaganda that permeates this individual's everyday life. So we are starting to get a sense of a pattern, one that references the institutions in place that are designed from the ground up to track and influence young people into specific ways of life that best fit with that machine, with the system that essentially runs society as we know it. However, like I mentioned, it's not been explicitly negative and doesn't have a perfect connection to shine on yet. But Wish You Were Here, the most poetic of the songs on the album, introduces a theme of its own in contradiction and more importantly, a lack of ability in determining what the difference between a good and bad thing is, or even so, a lack of the ability to even choose. The most scathing of which comes from the line in the end of the second verse. Take a listen. Did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? Now, being the most poetic song in the album, this could have various meanings, but let's look at the most surface-level interpretation. There are really only two avenues from being a soldier to being a prisoner. One, you can be a prisoner of war, or POW, trapped in an enemy prison, caught during the midst of battle and held for ransom or torture or whatever hells they do in war. Or, two, you can be a prisoner of your own side for quote-unquote dishonorable actions, even so much as refusing to be a party to the system and deserting. This is a Sophie's choice. You can either be on the front lines causing and or risking death, or you can be a prisoner for refusing. Not to mention that even today, a large majority of soldiers are less than 30 years old, still very much young adults, with many war deaths in earlier wars coming from individuals in their late teens and early 20s, barely not children. A narrative is forming, one of young people being forced into difficult future endeavors by a system designed to encourage their later impossible choices. 
transforming these young, impressionable individuals into broken and faceted ones, sheared by the corporate drive. And if we look at Shine On, we see a resemblance in the journey of the individual who had to leave. The literal opening lyrics of the album reference that when you were young, you shone like the sun. Now there's a look in your eyes like black holes in the sky. He's been drained. He was not always like this. Something did this to him. So then, on this context, we get a sense of the album as a whole. The album's through line is a story of an individual who, with the passion for music fostered and monitored by a predatory music industry, forms a band that becomes successful enough through his own exploitation before driving him to the brink and forcing his departure in a way that damages his life and shakes the foundation of the band he helped create. It's a story of manipulation, of childhood stardom, and of burnout, in a way that the band hopes to shine a light on and lament. Now, you ask, how does a nine-part song that straddles a prog rock album and only contains lyrics in two of its nine parts convey the story of an individual's rise to fame and his subsequent departure? Well, really, just the same way we do with the regular songs. Now that we have a framework from which to look at the album, a theory from which to start from, we can dissect the parts and organize them thematically. Let's start with part one, obviously. Part one is one of the longest, a slow and soft buildup that, in this case, seems to represent the start of the individuals, let's just call him Diamond, the start of Diamond's journey into music and the slow start of the band. This leads into part two through five, musically very similar sections that showcase the beginning of success in part two, a guitar riff opening this part that sounds clear and bright, signaling the coming of a new era. Part two then builds into a driving beat that rolls forward through part three, with a massive guitar solo that kind of really showcases the success that they've achieved. Take a listen to some of the solo and hear the confidence with which it is performed. It's a screamer, but there's a tinge of sadness here, a reference to this haunting of fame. Part 3 softens at the end of the solo and launches immediately into the opening lines I read earlier, the first lyrics to the album. And part 4 begins here. a treatise written from the future about the band's suspicions that had begun to grow regarding Diamond's mental state at the time. Here is likely a good place to talk about the phrase with which they reference Diamond at all. Diamonds are notoriously coveted, with long and deeply complicated histories and significances that span back thousands of years. Diamonds have been known to stand for brilliance, longevity, beauty, strength, yet also have kind of slowly come to be tarnished by which they are acquired or desired. Many historical diamonds are believed to be cursed, bringing strange and untimely death to those who possess these gems. 
And slowly, nowadays, natural diamonds are starting to become replaced more and more by lab-grown varieties in an attempt to avoid the taint of blood and labor that accompanies that industry. In turn, much like their appearance, diamonds are then multifaceted. In Shine On, we see the description of Diamond's personality in very multifarious terms, describing him as non-exhaustively a stranger, legend, martyr, painter, piper, raver, seer of wisdoms, and even prisoner. Despite the insistence on his insanity constantly referred in the chorus, the members of the band seem to be suggesting a diverse and complicated personality, one that obviously had at least some positive impact on the band. This is an interesting idea in that he was still a part of the band in this timeline in part form, but it seems that his positive qualities at this point outweighed the negative problems he had been having. There is even reference to something akin to night terrors or even paranoia in the line, threatened by shadows in the night, exposed in the light, showcasing this dichotomous persona that was beginning to form. And just as described in part four's line, you wore out your welcome with random precision, we see this dichotomy start to become more apparent and extreme in part five. Part 5 introduces two musical themes that carry into the rest of the album, even the second half bookend. One of an arpeggiating acoustic guitar, and one of a chaotic soloist, here represented by a saxophone. The acoustic guitar seems to be referencing his clarity, his lucidity, opening the part with a soft assuredness that quickly becomes overshadowed by the saxophone. The chaotic soloist actually is utilized in two different but similar ways, here taking the form of the chaotic and mentally unwell portion of Diamond's mind. This is the moment of turning, the period where the band is peaking and Diamond's mental health becomes erratic and unstable. Take a listen. Did you notice the acoustic guitar underneath the saxophone squeals? This is a really important idea, one that goes along with the idea of this being a tribute to Diamond rather than a condemnation. Regardless of how far along his difficulties were or the damage caused by them, he was still himself underneath it. He didn't turn into a monster when his mind began to fail. He was just being overshadowed by a worse version of himself. There's a tenderness here that is important to note, especially considering the direction the album takes following the end of part 5, the wind down from the band's drive from parts 2 through 5, and the introduction into the middle three songs. Welcome to the Machine is an unhappy song. It sounds funereal, depressive, and cold. Mechanical sounds open the song for nearly a full minute before any sort of actual acoustic instruments break into the fold. The lead singer's voice sounds distraught and nearly hysterical, crying out the lyrics throughout the song without much affectation or change. 
This is not the sound of an individual in control, cool and collected in the knowledge of their grand plan coming together. This almost reads like a warning formed by the realization of a system that they were a part of and the awareness that it's likely to happen again and again. The song is largely the same from beginning to end, a rhythmic strumming of an acoustic guitar layered with occasional accents by other guitars and deep oral synths. There's actually no drums in the entire song. The only significant change beyond the lyrics in the opening of the song is an ongoing and wailing synthesizer solo that takes up a total of about four minutes of this seven-minute song. Tonally, we have to look at the context in order to fully dissect the existence of this bombastic synth solo. The song immediately follows the mental anguish from Shine On Part 5, a part largely predicated on this marriage, or rather domination, from an erratic saxophone solo over a gentle and lucid acoustic guitar part. Welcome to the Machine seems to mirror this idea, but is presenting the timbre as much darker and morose, turning the organic saxophone into an extremely robotic synth, and the gentle arpeggiating guitar into a series of loud, violent minor strumming. Diamond was a member of the band, someone they knew, so they were still able to see the fullness in him, the real person behind the problems he may have had. Here, the band seems to be mirroring his struggle in a way that presents a theory to how he ended up the way he did, yet also abstracts it out to the countless others that are left in the cold. The electronic and minor nature highlighting the problem at large and the representation of these people caught in the system as just points in a plan for corporate or capitalistic success. And just as much as Welcome to the Machine seems to point a finger at society at large for creating a culture of control and predestination, Have a Cigar zooms into a very specific microcosm of the same problem within the music industry. The song appears on the surface to be a much brighter song. However, a point of view shift from the abstract chaos into the person directly at the heart. Listen to the first half of the first verse of the song and pay careful consideration to the way the lead singer hams up the lyrics. You're gonna go far. You're gonna fly high. You're never gonna die. You're gonna make it if you try. They're gonna love you. These are words of affirmation, extremely unsubtle attempts to make an individual feel special without really representing any truth behind the words. Yet the subtlety is overlooked by the addressee, a young rocker on the upswing in their band's success. These are dangerous sentiments to a naive individual, a young individual, in the hopes of becoming famous, words designed to breed guilt in breaks and cultivate a personality of obsession for more. Effectively, the song is written like a conversation between a manager and band member discussing the latest success of the band in a way that seems to commodify them. Sandwiched right in the middle of the verses is a revealing sentiment. 
You got to get an album out. You owe it to the people. The manager obviously does not care about the fans. He only cares about their wallets, referencing the amount of money they've been making numerous times, even going so far as to say that the name of the game is riding the gravy train in the choruses, a gravy train being essentially just a euphemism for making a lot of money. This is manipulative language, as it's clear he doesn't really even care about the band, as referenced by his inability to even remember really anything about the band itself. He says, the band is just fantastic, that's what I really think. Oh, by the way, which one's pink? This is a fourth wall breaking line, a quick nod to themselves by way of implying the manager thinks the band is made of two people named Pink and Floyd, and he's trying to figure out which one is named Pink. Yet, this is also another connection to implying the album is first and foremost about corrupting industries and how these went into causing their specific bandmate, Diamond's, decline. The ending of this song is particularly fascinating as well, in that we hear two major returning musical themes play off of each other. We get a pretty dynamic and powerful guitar solo playing alongside a sharp, staticky synth. look back on the description of the guitar solo in part three of Shine On, we see that the guitar solo is a stand-in for the band's success. But if we look at the preceding song, Welcome to the Machine, we see that the solo synth is a stand-in similar to the saxophone solo for mental corruption. The band is inextricably linking the two here, showing that the band's success was largely, or at least partly, predicated on taking advantage of someone who is unable, for whatever reason, to realize that they were a pawn in this game. And finally, we reach the namesake of the album, Wish You Were Here. We talked a little bit about this song earlier and its acknowledgement of instability or naivety, or a lack in the capacity for noticing something good or bad. In part as well, this is a song that seems to be a treatise on not really being sure of growth or change, realizing that these rhythms they've been describing are in place and that there isn't really an easy way out of it. Confusion kind of permeates the song and leaves a sense of obfuscation over what the actual intention of the lyrics are, so much so that I, having listened to the album quite a few times and running over the song with as fine of a toothed comb as I could find, am not really 100% sure what the actual point of this song is which, in some ways, may be the point. If we look at the first verse of the song, the contradictory trades the lead singer references continuously ask if the addressee can tell something good from something bad. Yet much of verse 2 has the singer asking about trading something arguably bad for something good, before finishing the verse with the impossible choice we discussed before, where both options are less than ideal, to say the least. In some ways, the song seems to be implying that whether something good or bad happens, it's impossible to tell, and it's something that you will have no control over regardless. Before, suddenly, we break out of the cycle for a moment, and we hear the only chorus in this song, where he stops trying to figure everything out and wishes just for a moment to be together with, well, likely Diamond.
After all, if we're just fish swimming in a bowl created to contain us, finding and experiencing the same fears we've always had, at least it would be nice to be together in that. And that's truly the heartbreak of the album. For a split second, we move away from the cries against the system and the explanation for why it happened, and we get a moment of tender reflection in realizing that they wish Diamond never would have had to leave at all, wishing that he had the ability to stay, and that he did. And this is likely why the album is called Wish You Were Here and not Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Because the album isn't necessarily about Diamond's mental health, the highs and lows that were created from it, and the system that may have instigated or at minimum heightened these situations. The album is likely meant to be more about missing Diamond and wishing he were still a part of everything, wishing he were a part of making this. If we look at the cover of the album, we see a picture of two similar-looking individuals shaking hands on a studio lot. Yet, most importantly, one of them is on fire. This could be read as the two facets of Diamond described by the acoustic guitar and the crazy soloist, the lucidity and the fracturing. But it could also be read as both individuals being representative of different members of the band, or different sides of the band. If we consider that a band is a cohesive blending of multiple individuals' music styles, we could consider the band as a whole to be one entity or identity, and so the cover shows us the band shaking hands with another member of the band, or Diamond here, still identical to the other in appearance, but suffering from something else individual. The shaking of hands is cordial and soft yet secure, seemingly a note on the band's reluctance in his leaving, yet knowledgeable on its necessity. Yet no matter what, it leaves an indelible mark on the record, a burn mark appearing in the upper right of the bounding box of the image, and consequently, it leaves an indelible mark on the band. So then, we move on to Shine On You Crazy Diamond parts 6 through 9. After a brief, heavy maelstrom-like connector between Wish You Were Here and Part 6's opening. Actually, you know what? It may be a fine time to briefly discuss the endings of the middle three songs before we move on to Part 6, as they all kind of end in a rather bizarre way. Welcome to the Machine fades out with a radio-like sounding distortion to the music before feeding into a mechanical interlude similar to its beginning and then just stock sounding noise of a random crowd of people for like 25 seconds. Have a Cigar ends with a strange and ear-splittingly loud wind noise before bringing the music into a distant and tinny sounding filter similar to like a small speaker in the distance. And Wish You Were Here becomes ensconced in this gusting wind effect until the beginning of part six. Take a quick listen to the end of each. Why? Like, why are these endings so weird? Well, if we break these down into just a couple of elements, we have wind sounds, radio distortion, and a crowd. The radio distortion seems to be pushing the elements of the music far back, almost like a memory. 
The wind sounds are masking the sounds of the music, and the crowd is loud and unintelligible, voices mixing in space without reason. Realistically, each one of these could be interpreted as breakdowns in understanding or corruptions of the original in a way that seems to be getting worse as the album goes on. And if we look at this as beginning in part 5 with the saxophone breakout of Diamond's mental state declining, these endings seem to be building naturally to part 6, where his mind fully fractures. Part 6 has a similar soft building like part 1, but unlike part 1, and more like Welcome to the Machine, which has similar mechanical rhythmic ideas, part 6 is much darker and more sinister. For much of this part, the song is slowly building with another interplay between the guitar and the synth, the success and the chaos, but with the synth taking a much more controlling part of the mix. However, over the course of the part, they start to meld and mix into each other before ending in an actually screaming-sounding guitar solo that seems to take some of its tonal language from the synth. Take a quick listen. The band's success is peaking here and exploding into the chaos, causing a full and complete dissolution of Diamond's place within the band's ecosystem. The song follows this dissolution and dissolves itself into a reprise of part four with part seven. At this point, the band is very much realizing the times that are occurring and are bringing attention to this status. There is a stunning musical parallel here that occurs with just a simple changing of the lyrics, but a nearly point-by-point exact replica of the earlier part in terms of the music. Listen to parts 4 and 7 here at the same time, layered in a portion that exposes a guitar riff from part 4 that is 100% duplicated here. lyrics have changed from a discussion about the problems Diamond is currently having to a not-so-subtle plea that he needs to leave, with lines like, Nobody knows where you are. I'll be joining you there. We'll bask in the shadow of yesterday's triumph, talking like he's already left. The lyrics are still delicate, but they are very clear that his time has come, and as such, we hear his lucidity arpeggiating guitar one more time as the song fades out of part 7 into part 8. This is his departure. Now, part eight is absolute nonsense. It is completely unlike anything else in the album, a jam fest in a tonally unexplored space with a wobbly and spacey synth and one of the groovingest bass lines I've ever heard. And this makes a lot of sense. The band is in uncharted waters, an unsteady foundation of discovering how to exist without a key part of the group, playing around with sounds and rhythms to determine a new course the soft and slight tinge of darkness, or minor key, in some of the riffs. The band at this point will never be the exact same again, and there is mending and healing and change that still needs to happen. And so, part eight resolves, 
and the music slows down again, and we get a somber look at the future with part 9. The music is slow but punchy, and a strange, new-sounding synth plays through an unsure space that skates around a sad timbre. Yet, just as the 12 and a half minute song nears its end, and the resolution seems far and unattainable, the synth breaks into major chords, and the music lifts for a moment. It doesn't ever quite reach resolution, but just for an instant, it feels strangely hopeful. Reluctant and subtle, but there, a newfound hope for the band, and being that it is very specifically using the synth here, possibly a newfound hope for Diamond as well. Take a listen. As the song fades out, so do we come to an end on Wish You Were Here, an album by Pink Floyd, a band that recently lost a key part of its sound and its heart, an album that explores the industries of manipulation that exploit young people's naivety and lack of experience to turn them into unwilling pawns in a larger game for profit or war or control, an album that speaks to the humanity still within those who struggle with mental health, and at its core, an album that wishes that none of this had to happen, that in the chaos of life, it would be truly nice to spend time with the ones you know and love because it's really hard to know what else is true. And really, what other lesson could we hope to learn than to know that it's the people around us that truly matter, that truly make it all shine a bit more brilliant. Stick around after the break for a conversation about the album with special guest and Pink Floyd fan, Summer. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done talking about the album in our breakdown of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, and now we're going to have a quick conversation about the album as referenced by fans, as referenced by album reviewers over the years, as referenced by the band. And to do that, I have a special guest and huge Pink Floyd fan, uh, Summer. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Of course. I am happy to have you here. I was trying to find someone like I personally have not heard of this band a whole lot. So, I was, oh, I don't know anyone other than my dad who is a Pink Floyd fan. So I like reached out on my Facebook. Does anybody have any connection to this band at all? And then I was connected to you and you're younger than me. How did you get into Pink Floyd at all? <laughs> Well, it, it definitely all starts with our dads, right? Right. <laughs> so I remember when I was really little, my dad called me in the kitchen at one point and said, you have to watch the Another Brick in the Wall part two music video. It is required rock and roll listening. <laughs> and I remember just thinking it was the coolest thing ever. 
I mean, I've always been into classic rock. Sure. I really started getting into the band, The Wall, Comfortably Numb, listening to Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 a thousand times over. And then I got deep into their early stuff. Instead of going from The Wall to Dark Side of the Moon, which I think is a pretty typical path, Sure. I went to The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which was their first album released in 1967. And right. then I just spread out from there. Wow. Yeah. I knew like four albums <laughs> off the top of my head <laughs> when I was first writing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've had classic rock experience and stuff like that, but I've never really searched out the band other than the hits that you hear on the radio and stuff like that. But yeah, so this album is really interesting because it, it's one of the ones that I had never heard of. But after doing some research, it seems to be one of the ones that's definitely like was almost one of the hardest on the band for them to kind of record. There's just some stuff about from like Roger Waters, one of the members of the band, who's just talking about how drained they were after this. But yeah, I, I really didn't know that much going into it. And I'm assuming that you have some greater knowledge on what was going on with the band at this time like this was seven years after Sid's departure like why then that is a really good question let me start with Sid's departure in the band actually sure so the Piper at the Gates of Dawn 1967 Pink Floyd's first studio album Sid Barrett wrote essentially the entire thing and at that point it was in the band Sid Barrett and Roger Waters the two founding members as well as Rick Wright the keyboardist and Nick Mason, the drummer. Mm -hmm. At that point, Pink Floyd started becoming commercialized. People started to know who they were. They started playing out at more gigs, bigger venues. Pink Floyd's next album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, came out after Piper. Right. And Sid's last contribution to the band through music was in A Saucer Full of Secrets last song called Jug Band Blues. Okay. So it's definitely really interesting that between that album and Wish You Were Here, uh, 1975, that there was this break and that they wanted to revisit Sid's influence and not just a general way, not just in a good way or in a bad way, but talking about the influence that he had on their music and the way that they viewed the music industry. Mm -hmm. So after a saucer full of secrets was released they had some albums that came after that um a big one was amagama and that album is notorious for having a bunch of different themes being really confusing this was okay. <laughs> truly after sid's yeah, this was truly after sid's departure where the band was trying to figure out a direction that they wanted to go in they had sid's influence and he gave them a foundation for the direction that they were going to go in, but they didn't really know how to get there. Right. And so with Amagama, all of the members, I believe, contributed whatever they wanted to contribute, and then they threw it all together in this big mesh. Yeah, no, that's super interesting because talking about kind of what was going on in Shine On You Crazy Diamond, there is that part near the end of the album, part eight, where it is just chaotic. And I talked a little bit about kind of like this idea of, oh, after his departure, there's this big chaotic part in part eight where they're like playing a bunch of different instruments. It sounds completely different from the rest of the album. And it's interesting that it is pretty much exactly what 
happened. Immediately after his departure, there was an album that they released that was kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah, that album is definitely notorious for being quite a mess. Sure. Then the next album was Adam Hart Mother. They were past Amagama. They were past Saucer Full of Secrets. And they had an idea of the direction that they wanted to go in. Yeah. But the producers and the people that were editing their music said, you guys need to find a direction to go in. And I believe that that did influence the way that the track Adam Hart Mother came out. Mm -hmm. But that was definitely a time when they started to form ideas and carry out these ideas for where they wanted to go. It's it's just it's strange to me that after because they covered a little bit about Sid Barrett's leaving. I remember seeing this in Dark Side and then continued again into Wish You Were Here. And I have a quote from Roger Waters, which is an interview he was doing in 1993. So this is really close to when the band like kind of dissolved. And he says, it was very strange. The lyrics were written and the lyrics are the bit of the song about Sid and the rest of it could be about anything. I don't know why I started writing those lyrics about Sid. I think because that phrase of Dave's was an extremely mournful kind of sound. And it just, and then he says, I haven't a clue, but it was a long time before the Wish You Were Here recording sessions when Sid states could be seen as being symbolic of the general state of the group, i.e. very fragmented. Mm -hmm. I do remember recently that I had come across that quote by Roger Waters also. And the notes that he's referring to that David Gilmore played are those four notes that begin that crazy beautiful guitar solo in shine on you crazy diamond yeah. part one through five but it's definitely very interesting that those notes just sparked this idea in him to go on and do this whole album about Sid essentially Right. Yeah. And and I was seeing some weird stuff about those four notes because I was looking at kind of like the contributions that people make on Genius. Somebody was saying that those four notes are supposed to be Sid's riff. And it's weird that they're kind of reading that as that because I didn't read that part as Sid. I was reading Sid as more of the dichotomy between the acoustic guitar underneath the soloists more than anything else. Oh, very interesting. Okay, with those four notes, I myself had actually interpreted that to be David Gilmore with the rest of the band members following as a cry out to him. Oh, okay, cool. As a cry out to Sid. Yeah, that's an interesting read as well, because I read it, again, having no context before writing the breakdown, I read it as, oh, this is the signifier for the band's success. This is the moment where the band kind of turns into being successful, because we hear that riff again in the end. But reading that as a cry out to him also works in the way of it working at the end of the song, where they're in that kind of vein of success again, but almost lamenting his loss. Yeah, it's definitely, yes. definitely a, an interesting interpretation. Mm -hmm. Continuing with that, actually. So at the very end of the whole album, this is at minute 12 and seven seconds of Shine On You Crazy Diamond parts six through nine. There is a nod to the melody in the verse of See Emily Play, which is one of the very first songs that Pink Floyd released. Oh. Oh, okay. It was written by Sid Barrett. So it's very interesting that Rick Wright, the keyboardist, threw that in there. So, Christian, I have my flute with me. Is it all right if I just play those notes really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. <laughs> So 
so I know that that's a little rough around the edges, but that goes with the lyrics in See Emily Play. Okay. Emily tries but misunderstands. Ah, and so it was really a very nice nod to Sid at the end of the entire thing. With however you interpret the first four guitar notes that dart the whole guitar solo at the very beginning. Yeah. And then the notes to see Emily play at the very end. I think that it comes full circle very, very nicely in that way. That is like the first time in that section of the song that the music is almost major. It kind of turns into something that's less of a sorrowful synth thing into that refrain that I thought was just like a resolution of everything before kind of this hopeful thing but hearing it be a reference to a song that he wrote is even more telling i think definitely i know that earlier in this episode you were speaking to part nine's hopefulness at the end as it becomes lighter and becomes softer yeah and i definitely feel that with these notes from c emily played like a call to move on while still keeping sid in our hearts it's so interesting hearing the tenderness and everything about this album because of everything that was going on in the band at the time and they were just like worn out from touring and they were upset about their record label and you we can hear that a lot in their turn against their managers and things like that in welcome to the machine and have a cigar and all of that is really cynical toward the music industry and there's even references like the people that were making the album or the people that were designing the cover art aubrey powell and storm thorgerson aubrey powell being like one of the peak album art designers from that time he's saying the title clearly derives from the theme of absence it is an ironic request that implies the opposite referring to postcards sent from abroad by people who are probably rather pleased that you're not around so it's interesting that there's a lot of these references from the people that were making this album about oh yeah this is like it's about absence emotional and physical absence in relationships when people withdraw their commitment their emotional presence and become absent it is often for fear of getting hurt or being burned hence the burning man on the cover but it seems like a lot more looking back on it, it is kind of this very tender tribute to somebody who was going through a very difficult time. Definitely. Going back to the cover art, the way that I interpreted it with the one man on fire was that this was sealing some kind of sinister deal. Oh, okay. With the light handshake, but the one guy on fire. The cover art was shot at the Warner Brothers studio. Yeah, it definitely looked like a studio lot. <laughs> Just a really interesting choice for the cover art for this particular album going along with themes. Mm -hmm. With the sealing a deal idea, Christian, I was wondering if you have any ideas about any connections to the album as a whole that that could apply other than basically because i know that sid barrett for his time during the band he was struggling with an lsd addiction from my understanding and this idea of being on fire is something that is attributed to drug addiction from my perspective because i already talked about like the person on fire being sid I don't know. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure where I would fall in terms of this kind of like idea of a sinister deal. Other than that. That's very interesting that you mentioned that being on fire is associated with drug addiction. I didn't know that at all. I think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
I'll okay. have to look that up. <laughs> I'm not sure. If I may, I would love to get into Sid's downfall from the band. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because this is a huge point in the album. So let me see where to start. Well, yes, you did mention the LSD addiction. Of course, everything that I'm going to mention is just based off of secondhand accounts or thirdhand accounts. Right. Nothing coming directly from the source. Yeah, like Roger Waters, even in that interview, he was saying, oh, well, we probably won't ever know the full Sid Barrett story. And Roger Waters is like, you probably don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it really is very tragic. At a certain point in his life, he started experimenting with LSD. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of different accounts of what happened to him because of the drug that led to his decline mentally. Right. And with that, some people claim that he developed schizophrenia. There's no way to know for sure. There are a lot of accounts that say that he and his friends would dose each other randomly, which of course is very, very dangerous. Right. There are some other accounts saying that people dosed him on purpose, not as a joke, but as a way to intentionally cause a downfall in him. And we're never going to know exactly what happened, but something that I think can be said is that LSD definitely contributed to his declining mental health. Right. As for leaving the band, so what initially happened, to my understanding, was that the band members knew that something was going on. He would miss practices, he would miss recordings, and he would just completely be a no-show. Right. So they got David Gilmore in to fill in for Sid Barrett when Sid, when they didn't know Sid's whereabouts, whether or not he was actually going to show up. And there was one account of a gig that they had where Sid just stood on the stage and just kind of played one note the entire time. And so David Gilmore started off not as a replacement for Sid, right. but as a supplement, really, because this was at the point where Sid was falling down from their lead man. He was the one that had been leading the interviews, writing all of their music. And so without him, the band was starting to decline musically commercially mm -hmm. and it was during this time Sid knew exactly what was happening to him he wasn't oblivious he wasn't so far gone that he didn't know what was happening and so going back to jug band blues I just want to read off some of the lyrics which was his final musical contribution to the group yeah he said it's awfully considerate of you to think of me here, and I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. He also says, and I'm grateful that you threw away my old shoes and brought me here instead dressed in red. I think that this really speaks to the fact that he knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. I don't think that the other band members wanted him gone emotionally. Yeah, and it's clear through the lyrics in this album that they were they sound really reluctant in a lot of the stuff in this album as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that Sid knew exactly what was happening to him. I noticed that earlier in the episode you mentioned that in the welcome to the machine lyrics it says he always ate in the steak bar he loved to drive in his jaguar right yeah so i was reading that as just kind of general propaganda using these 
Because Welcome to the Machine doesn't seem to be very specifically about the music industry so much as Half a Cigar does. Welcome to the Machine seems a lot more just generalized kind of societal pushes toward doing the things that society wants you to do, putting you in the, in the boxes that society wants to put you in through its methods of like, oh, we know what you're doing, so we're going to advertise these things to you. We're going to show you these people living rich lives and stuff. So you're like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do and push yourself towards becoming this kind of commodity in the capitalistic environment. Okay, very, very interesting. Yeah. So with that, uh, so are you thinking like the industry itself is almost waving a dollar in front of your face, but yes. subduing you at the same time. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's kind of definitely how I read Welcome to the Machine and then also have a cigar, but Welcome to the Machine seems broader and not just music industry. Okay. So I did want to make this connection between that and money in Dark Side of the Moon. Okay. So in the last verse of money, there's a line that says, money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. But if you ask for a rise, it's no surprise that they're giving none away. And I think that that's a really very interesting, cynical turn on what Dark Side of the Moon portrays as hopeful. Right, Where yeah. first it's starting off as there's hope and everything in your future is shiny and glittery. But then in Welcome to the Machine, they're saying you cannot actually have this. It's very similar to a point that I brought up in my covering of Power Windows by Rush, because there's a song in Power Windows that has a line that says, all of this song is about trying to chase your dreams and like having the endurance to chase your dreams. But in the chorus, there's a line that says something always fires the light that gets in your eyes, kind of implying that like, yeah, you can dream, you can chase these things all you want, but there's going to be something that stops you. And the rest of the album talks about this whole like capitalistic thing. So it's, it's very clear that bands at this time, especially these prog rock bands that were more progressive, are being like, rich people kind of suck. And they'll wave this dollar bill in front of your face and then be like, uh, nah. <laughs> and it shows the perspective of the band at the time and kind of everything that they were going through and the problems that they were having with the industry while being inside of it to go from almost hopeful and dark side to being like, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just completely shutting down any possibility, which is definitely a huge theme in Wish You Were Here, just beating you down, saying, no, this isn't possible because right. we say it's not. Yeah, yeah, everything is is commodified and it, it makes the story kind of even sadder because there's a, there's definitely a general theme throughout the whole album of you guys did this to him. Yeah. It's really sad. <laughs> It is really very, very sad. I think that there are a lot of people to hold accountable for this. Yeah. And I, as much as I love Pink Floyd, I do think that they're at fault also for caring more about the band than they did their friend, which I don't think that I personally can blame them too much for it. Right. Because of all of the hype of getting super famous. And this was at a time when their musical careers were really taking off with the band, especially in England and producing new music. And there was a lot of hope for the band. 
So it makes sense that they were so tunnel visioned towards success. Yeah. But I don't think that anybody could have predicted that this would have happened to Sid and that they would have played any kind of part in it. Yeah. I think that it was just a really terrible situation and nobody really could have done anything. So I guess instead of saying that I place blame on the other members, I would say that without realizing it they contributed to his not being able to participate in the music industry anymore there is also something important that i do want to bring up about the recording sessions for shine on you crazy diamond sure so the recording sessions occurred at abbey road studios no one will ever know why, but Sid Barrett showed up to the Shine On Crazy Diamond recordings. They, yeah, I the read other about band that. members, yeah, they didn't recognize him at all. He had completely changed his appearance and they just completely had no idea who it was until David Gilmore recognized him and said that it was Sid. And I remember reading that Roger Waters completely broke down. It's really a very sad thing that happened, but it's also, to me, it feels like a cosmic necessity almost for this to have happened while they were recording a song, a, a beautiful masterpiece that was about him. Right. It feels like it was really right, and I feel like that emotion of seeing him in the studio while they were recording is captured in the music. It's very haunting. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things that that Roger Waters talks about in that interview. And he just the interviewer says to him, the nightmare was simply all of you arriving at doing it and not really knowing why. And Roger Waters says, yes, absolutely, which is why it's good. It's symbolic of what was going on. Uh, most mm -hmm. people's experience is arriving at a point at which others are arriving from somewhere else and not knowing what they're doing and why. And all we were doing making Wish You Were Here was being like everybody else, full of doubts and uncertainties. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's really well captured in the album. Yeah, it was really very crazy. So something else that I did want to mention sure. was, I believe it's in Have a Cigar. There's yeah. the line, oh, by the way, which one's pink? Yeah. This is one of my favorite lines of any Pink Floyd song. I think that it's one of the most famous lines in psychedelic and progressive rock period. It's it's very, very clever. So the way that Pink Floyd got their name was Sid Barrett was flipping through some vinyls. Mm -hmm. They were looking for a band name and he yanked out of his collection Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Right. And he was like, Pink Floyd. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. That's how we all the best it. band names are made, honestly, <laughs> just by random chance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know that earlier in the episode, you were mentioning that the media was not sure which person was pink. But right, the yeah. way that I interpret this line is that they don't care about who the actual people are. So oh. it's stripping away the musicians out of the music. It's not recognizing that they're people, not commodities. And so to say which one's pink, they're really asking, okay, now which one of you band members is Pink Floyd? Right. And in, instead of even caring to get to know their names, right? the music industry and the media created this character named Pink that then was used as this symbol to show how everything around him was just completely destroying him. He really just became 
the target of the music industry. Right. Oh, 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 I wanted to mention. So with the lyrics from the Wish You Were Here album, you mentioned the word prisoner a lot and you went in to describe a bunch of different interpretations. Yeah. And the way that I interpreted the word prisoner throughout the album was how the media viewed him and the media's take on what happened to him. Right. They said he was an LSD casualty, that after he left Pink Floyd, however you want to define his not being in the band anymore, mm -hmm. that he became a recluse. What I view happened was that he did what was best for his mental health. And the way that the media portrayed that was that he just became a total failure in life and went on to be nobody because they couldn't sell him anymore because right. they couldn't have cameras around him. So what happened was he went to live with his sister. He sold his guitar. He spent time with his family. He made artwork. Yeah, there's even reference to him being a painter in the lyrics of Shine On. Yeah, definitely. And so with the painter reference in Shine On, that's a hopeful, positive call. Yeah. And a positive reflection of what he means as a person. Yeah. I definitely think it is the music industry that caused people on the outside to view him in this negative way as a failure as a recluse as a casualty but what he really did was go on to heal himself the best as he could mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of one of the most important things about this album specifically is that this album represents his decline of mental health but doesn't portray him as a monster or anything like that there's so much here in the album that is going into filling him out, giving texture to this person as somebody who was more than just their declining mental health, who was a full person beyond all of this, painter, all of these things. The album is so dead set on ensuring that everyone understands that this isn't the only person that he was. And it's tragic that it had to end the way that it did. So I agree on you there that it is a, it was definitely a tragic loss for the music industry. He was very, very, very talented. And I'm not sure if you knew this, but he actually went on to write two solo albums after his, after he left Pink Floyd. I did not know that. Yeah, he wrote The Madcap Laughs, and he also wrote another one called Barrett. Both of those albums are really very sad, very solemn. They show a lot of his heart and soul. And I'm glad that we got those last two albums from him mm -hmm. before he retired from the music industry completely. Yeah. But I think that if we're going to say that his loss was a tragedy in any way, I do think that it was for music and for what music does to people's souls and the way that they can relate to people, especially with Sid. I know that I personally relate to him greatly because of all of these pressures from society that I sure that I really wish to escape and just completely get out. Yeah. And the way that society views you as essentially useless if you can't be commercialized. But I think that for his own personal life, it was a very beneficial thing that he left the music industry because it allowed him to be happy. It allowed him to go on to do what he really wanted to do, which was 
be an artist for the sake of being an artist, sure. not to be commercialized for it. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of one of the biggest problems right now is that everything is commodified. Everything is an attempt to make more and do more. And the fact that he was able to escape that and still be able to create the thing that he wants to create is really kind of the silver lining of everything that happened for sure. Definitely. All right. Well, um, do, is there anything that you wanted to plug or promote or anything like that um, before we head off? I just want to leave off on a note to the listeners. Go listen to The Piper at the Gates of Dawn by Sid Barrett and the rest of Pink Floyd, but it's just one of the most beautiful incredible albums of all time it is so magical and it really gives you the most beautiful vivid pictures in your mind it's just a really very special album and it captures the heart and soul of what Pink Floyd started off as and it was their foundation for going forward with the rest of their music so go give it a listen Cool. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me. You were a wonderful guest. You had so much more knowledge than I was even expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it is my pleasure to be here. Yeah, I guess with that, we will conclude episode three of Throughline with Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. And remember, everyone, never let anyone else tell you what your art is worth. Thank you so much. Thank you.